This is an ABC podcast. <laughs> My normal rhythm for being in the festival is perform, drink, perform, stay up late drinking, get stories, see the world. James Nokusei was doing well, enjoying his life and finding success as a stand-up comic in his home country, New Zealand, and beyond. Now he can't get out of bed. I've had a solid night drinking, meeting new performers from around the world, and having a blast. So the fact that I'm miserable in the morning, every morning, is really doing my head in. It's like the world is greyer than it should be. Welcome to Days Like These. I'm Faz Adraki, and today's story is about addiction, what it does to us and why it's so hard to break. And a warning, this story has some very strong language. So I'm in Wellington, and I'm seeing my GP, who has been my GP for two decades. I trust this man. So he looks me over and he, he does the, the blood pressure checks. He takes my temperature. He's asking me questions about my drinking habits. And I say, well, I drink a beer in the afternoon, have a wine when I go on stage, and then afterwards I'll have myself uh, maybe a whiskey to unwind. I might have a, a couple more red wines, uh, depending on how many more shows I go to. But then we normally go to the artist bar. And if I'm, if I'm not having a, a red wine there, they do very cheap $2 out of special beers from one of the sponsors. So I might have a few beers there. Even as I say it, it doesn't feel excessive. It's the way I have always drunk. I am not a messy drunk. It feels a correct amount. But even though his drinking feels correct, something about what his doctor says makes sense. And so he agrees to take a referral to a counsellor. When the counsellor calls... They say, well, this is a hospital calling. Can you come see us in a couple of weeks, uh, say, on April the 1st? And I went, I'm very sorry, I can't see you on April the 1st. They went, are you busy? And I went, no, but I'm a comedian, and if you want me to take this in any way, shape, or form seriously, I can't commit to coming to see you on April 1st. I'm sorry, it sounds very silly, but my brain won't do it. They went, well, then we can't see you for a couple more weeks. How about April the 11th? And I went, well, that's my mum's birthday, but okay. That's when you get the dread of, I'm going to have to tell people about this. Because up until then, it's just you and your doctor. But especially now I've committed to ruining my mum's birthday by having to go in to see some people about maybe being an alcoholic. It's a whole new level. It's five weeks until his mother's birthday. And the depression in the morning, the very thing that got him to the doctors in the first place... It's getting debilitating. And so I don't know what else to do except maybe try stopping. <clears throat> so I have one big gig for the end of the week, and it's hosting the New Zealand Fringe Festival Awards. It's a fun gig in an old Anglican church, and the minister of that church is a bit of a performer himself. And so I circled that, and I go, all right, that's the last hurrah. And through the week while I'm doing gigs, 
a joke about it with performers backstage. I said, you know, I'm going to stop drinking after the Fringe Awards. They went, really? Said, yeah, so, that's, so it's going to be a big one. I said, oh yeah, man, we're going out in style. And on the night of the awards, the minister comes up and he says, James, how are you going? I said, good, mate. I'm about to stop drinking, actually. He went, oh, well, we better toast that. And he pulls out a beer. In between hosting, I've got a bottle of wine underneath the pew and a glass there, and I'm just sneaking glasses while we're going. So I'm, I'm getting in early. And then afterwards, I'm like, we are going to have a time. I am stopping drinking tomorrow. And everyone's like, yeah. And so we go to the after party. I hit my second bottle of red wine. A couple of mates are buying me beers, so we're now double fisting with wine. There's a lot of dancing going on. I'm doing Samoan dancing that I have not pulled out for about 10 years. I don't just want to drink red wine. And I've got a bit of money from this gig. Give me some of that top shelf whiskey. 12 year Scottish whiskey, it's the good stuff. And that really hits the spot. I don't quite remember what happens next, but I know a couple of things. My dear friend put me in a taxi. Not back to the apartment I shared with my partner. It was to my mum's one-bedroom apartment. I do not have a key to my mum's apartment. I woke up with no one else in the house on her couch. So my final night of drinking resulted into me breaking into my mum's place and passing out on her couch which, bless her, she came downstairs and didn't lose her shit. She just covered me in a blanket and went to work. James can't stay on his mother's couch, and the lease is up at the flat he shares with his partner. So they move into a small shed at the back of his dad's place. When we moved in there, it was meant to be temporary accommodation. But we just happened to move in when I was about to go through withdrawal. On top of the headaches, I was starting to get like a pinched nerve sort of in between my shoulder and my neck. My partner and me, we have to go to a wedding. I'm going to be at my first major function where I don't drink. But it's all right. I've got a great plan. I was so cocky at this wedding. Would I like a beer? No, sir. I would not like a beer. I'll just have a ginger ale. It turns out, if you drink 15 ginger ales, you can get a thing called a sugar hangover. It was like the light didn't just stab into my head, but once in there, just blossomed open, and inside was a tiny monkey banging on a drum set. If it's not sugar hangovers, it's the ongoing withdrawal symptoms. And then when I went to bed, I would wake up in the middle of the night just covered in sweat. And each night, the sweat was getting worse. In fact, after a couple of nights, my partner just went and stayed with some friends because I was essentially wetting the bed. And my partner was begging me, take some painkillers. But I was really worried that if this was an addiction, then the last thing I wanted to do was switch from alcohol to painkiller, so I would hold off. And being a good Kiwi bloke, oh, it's, it's pain, but I can get through the pain. 
But the night sweats and the throbbing pain can't even compare to trying to perform on stage. I'm performing at the Wellington Comedy Club. I go on stage to a very warm Wellington audience and I just get very upset. And I don't know why. It's definitely not the sugar talking because I've recovered from that. But every little bit, every little whisper, any little glance, I just pick up on it. I'm so hypersensitive to this crowd and I just start calling them out. Nothing funny coming out of my mouth, just insults to random people at an intensity that they have not bought to me. I am definitely antagonizing them. Look, mate, don't talk, you sound like a cunt. And believe me, I know cunts when I hear cunts, and you definitely sound like the biggest cunt in Wellington right now. Now, you probably didn't intend to sound like a cunt, but you've come out here and you've made a complete cunt to yourself. So why don't you just shut the fuck up and let the professionals do what they're supposed to be doing instead of making a massive cunt yourself in front of a date who even now is thinking, I shouldn't be dating this cunt. So at the break, the bar manager comes back and he goes, how are you doing? Which is both Kiwi and Australian for I'm checking in. Yeah, it's, I've, I've just, I, I don't know, man. You seem a bit angry tonight, bro. I think you're going through withdrawal. So I go back out on stage and I say to this audience who do not trust me, guys, I think I need to explain something. I stopped drinking five days ago and I've never stopped drinking before. I am currently going through withdrawal live on stage. <laughs> and the whole audience laughs. There's just this release of this tension. People are nodding their heads going, this is definitely what it is. Back at home, he's getting a different kind of support. His stepmother is there to stand between James and his dad. He can sense when one of his children is about to open up emotionally and just like pivots towards the nearest exit. In fact, I told her that I was an alcoholic before I told my dad because I needed her help to get my dad to understand it. My stepmother was standing in the kitchen, just said, really loudly, Fele, your son has something very important to tell you and you need to hear it. I say, look, dad, um, I'm still waiting to have an official appointment, but uh, I've stopped drinking and it, it looks like I might be an alcoholic. My dad takes that in, he pulls out a cigarette, he lights it up and he goes, well, son, I have never struggled with addiction myself, but I'm sure it can't be easy. His dad might not want to deal with what James is going through, but his stepmom remains an important ally. So the other thing about moving in to my dad's shed is that my stepmother was dealing with cancer. My stepmother, who used to be a drinking partner with me in my early 20s, she can't drink anymore. So we end up having red herbal tea, a nod to our old red wine days, and we'll sit on the porch in the morning sun, in our dressing gowns, drinking our herbal tea. Her recovering from chemotherapy absolutely ravages the body, and me recovering from not ravaging my body. My dad, because he doesn't know how to do emotional processing, would see me after a night of sweating and pain and my stepmother after another chemo session and in a wonderful caring tone would go, you know, I just don't know which one of you has cancer at the moment. Then it happens. After 
11 days of being in the shed, I didn't get a headache. I didn't sweat through the bed. But that 11 days, it made it real for me. It made it real for my partner. It made it real for my family that I wasn't being melodramatic about the drinking. It had clearly done something to me. He stays sober. It's hard, but he doesn't drink. And finally, he gets to see the counsellor. She very kindly goes, so what are we in here for? I said, well, uh, I might have a drinking problem. She goes, okay, well, when are you going to stop? And I said, well, actually, I I stopped uh, three, four weeks ago. She said, what what do you mean you stopped? You're not meant to do that. We we have a program and we, we give you placebos and we sort of wean you off so it's not such a shock to your system. And she went, well, how's it been going? I said, well, it sucks. It sucks not drinking. I missed the taste. I missed the way that my performances were heightened and it felt like it was a natural extension of me. It felt like a drink was part of my persona. That it, and she said, like it completed you. And I went, yes. She said, are you aware you have been talking to me about alcohol like it's an ex-lover? You're using very romantic language to describe alcohol. It's just a drink. And my natural instinct was to go, no, it's, it's so much more. And it does so much. How long am I going to have to do this? And she went, well you're probably never going to be able to drink again. Never drinking again includes staying sober at the Edinburgh Fringe, which he's playing for the third time. My memories of Edinburgh involve drinking. The most natural thing in the world is to go to the bar as soon as I'm through the door before I hit the stage. There are a couple of places I walk into where I smell booze on mouldy carpet. I want to drink so hard and I've just got to leave. Even being with performers late at night, if I'm downwind from someone who's got a very good red wine, I have to change my seating position because there's a part of me that just wants to grab the glass and just have a little, just a little sip. That temptation is real and Part of what stops me is knowing that I won't be able to stop. If I have just a sip, I'll convince myself to have a glass. And I don't know how to convince myself to stop. That temptation is all the more real because not drinking is causing some issues. His counsellor had warned him that his neural pathways had grown in a way that actually made alcohol an essential part of performing. Before those pathways righted themselves, James had to go through some very strange performance issues. I would say a sentence back to front. I would reach for a word and it wasn't there. If I spoke too fast, I would lose the rhythm of the sentence. And that was very, very scary. Getting on stage becomes a battle. I just feel my brain slogging through each gig, like fighting in mud. Everything is slow. They all know I'm not drinking. But what they don't know is I'm not myself as a performer. And I'm hoping 
that I can wing it because I don't want anyone to know that my sobriety may have made me less of a performer. And halfway through the festival, I get a phone call. It's my sister, and she's crying. And all she can say is, she's gone. She's gone. The news of his stepmother's death on the other side of the world is like a gut punch. Then my father comes on, and he's crying. And all he can say is, I love you. And the thing about the emotional repressed men of the Antipodes, when you hear them cry, it breaks you. And it's the afternoon and my show isn't for another six hours. I want to drink so badly. And a friend of mine in the middle of this phone call sees the blood drain from my face, realize what has happened and goes and gets me this horrific Scottish drink called Iron Brew. This orange, horrible, sugary thing. And as I hang up the phone, this can of Iron Brew comes into my peripheral vision, sliding across the table towards me. And my friend goes, you see, mate, it can always be worse. I don't drink that night, and I don't drink the next night. One day at a time, one week at a time. A month goes by, I get back to New Zealand, I grieve with my family, I still don't drink. I miss alcohol, I miss drinking with my friends, but I have to do it because otherwise I will just not live. But I do feel better. I don't wake up feeling depressed and not knowing why. Okay, let's try two years. The first two years of not drinking, people just go, how is it? And I go, it sucks. It might suck, but it's not all bad. My comedy starts to get sharp again. The speed I felt I'd lost begins to come back. James begins to talk about his alcoholism on stage, testing the waters with new material. But not all audiences take it well. They've got some questions. Well, how come you can't drink? Oh, because it makes me really depressed, guys, and, um, you know, it's not good for my mental health. Well, bro, it's just because you're doing it wrong, man. you got to drink more, mate. If uh, you're an alcoholic, what does that make me? Oh, I don't care, bro. That's not how it works. You know, you keep drinking what you're drinking, I'll stay sober. It's just an uncomfortable truth. It's just science, mate. It's just an uncomfortable fact. Like the Virgin Mary wears a hijab. It's just an uncomfortable fact we're not ready to deal with. Oh, is it okay if I drink this beer around you then? I'm like, that is Foster's. I'm an alcoholic, but I still have standards. James is honest about his drinking and his stand-up gigs. The good, the bad, and the ugly. But he's careful, too, about not pushing, not being the poster child for sober comedians. In New Zealand and Australia particularly, there is a stigma around publicly saying that you don't drink. A fear that if the person on stage starts talking to you about not drinking, they're one step away from talking about Jesus and suddenly you've been tricked from being in a stand-up gig into a sermon and oh, now your soul's being saved. If you can present us a space for people to know that not only are they not alone, but there are different ways to 
think about situations which can make it less painful for them. I think that's something that we don't necessarily see in comedy that much. I just don't want to make an audience feel that uncomfortable. If they're not ready, that's okay with me. If this story raised anything for you, please seek support or advice from a medical professional. And remember, Lifeline is available any time of the night or day on 13 11 14. Thanks for listening to Days Like These. If you've got a story, please share it with us. You can send a voice memo or an email. Just drop us a line at dayslikethese at abc.net.au. And if you haven't already, follow Days Like These on the ABC Listen app or wherever you listen so that you never miss an episode. Our reporter today was Sam Wicks. Our sound engineer was John Jacobs. Sophie Townsend is our executive producer. This story was produced on the traditional lands of the Wurundjeri and Gadigal peoples. I'm Fazer Draki, and I'll see you next time. Hi, I'm Judith Lucy, and I'm overwhelmed and living. Remember the masterpiece that was my first podcast, Overwhelmed and Dying, back in 2020? A lot has happened since then. And with the exception of me finally getting laid, almost none of it's been good. COVID and the lockdowns made a lot of us look at our lives and think, this sucks. I sure did. So in my new series, I'm asking, can I really change my life? And while I'm about it, do more about climate change. Overwhelmed and living with me, Judith Lucy, is out now on the ABC Listen app.